Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of HR Tech Chat. And uh, today's episode is going to be very engaging and interesting and intriguing for you all. I know this for a fact because every single conversation I have with our guest, Dr. Tom Tonkin, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Tom is the CEO of the Conservatory Group. And he and I are both um, alumni, I guess. Uh, we worked on the same team uh, of Cornerstone on Demand, uh, where we, that's where we first began to have our, our uh, occasional uh, deep, deep discussions around human capital management, all this kind of stuff. Um, Tom has a pretty interesting background in it. And welcome to the chat, Tom. Thank you for joining us. You want to share with the uh, share with uh, viewers uh, a little bit more about your background, just so we just so we all know uh, where you're coming from, and then we can uh, get into some of the stuff we want to talk about. Yeah, that's excellent, Brett, and I appreciate you taking the time. And yes, you would think after all those conversations you and I had that we would have uh, the world would just be a better place because <laughs> we uh, we talked about those things. Uh, I like to consider myself what I call a recovering executive. Uh, the times that we have spent uh, in corporate America has taught me a lot of things. Um, I, I am an academic as well. And uh, I've gotten to be a point where I've sort of dabbled in all sorts of things. I think probably the most interesting part about my background, because again, people could, could Google and uh, find me LinkedIn and other places. So I won't go down that path. But it really has been around trying to understand people's behavior and why those behaviors occurred. And though that sounds like a broad uh, topic, it really isn't once you start instantiating. Again, you and I are going to have this conversation as it develops. You know, not only my academic, but also my professional background has been around that. And that's been instantiated in, in sales, in learning and development, as well as diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. And so that, that's always been my fascination is around what makes us tick, what's the behavior and how can we become better versions of ourselves? Mm. Interesting, yeah. And, um, and let's talk about that a little bit, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because it's, 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 it is front and center in HCM these days. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening around it. Excuse me, my contact. It's bothering me. Okay, it's better now. Um, and 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 I, I don't want to get, uh, let the horse out of the barn. I want to let you let the horse out of the barn here. But <laughs> but uh, we've had some very interesting conversations around DE and I, um, and um, and around how technology can help with that, and but also around ideas around uh, of empathy and versus authenticity and all these sorts of things and. People are using some of these words, uh, well-intentioned, uh, but but not exactly accurately. And um, I'll, I'll let you elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I think it's fair to to start with a, a sort of giving giving ourselves a running start as to how someone of of my social position ended up in this sort of diversity and inclusion um, space. 
it was never really my intention, honestly, to get into this. Uh, I started many years ago, both in a professional and an academic trail. And I started looking at cultures. That's really where this whole thing really emanated for me, doing a lot of research in the different cultures of the world. And I landed in the gaps in, in gender equality. And that just became fascinating to me and very, very academic perspective. I found myself uh, at one point, 2012, speaking uh, in front of uh, many women at a leadership conference about diversity and inclusion. And I have to admit to you and the listeners is that was probably one of my more intimidating presentations I've ever had <laughs> as a man. And uh, because of that presentation, I then moved on in 2000, I think it was 13 or 14, to present to the first uh, annual uh, International Leadership Association for Women mm. in uh, Silomar, California. <clears throat> and I, I spoke in front, again, uh, to many women, over 400. And it, it, the whole concept really f uh, not only fascinated, fascinated me as an as a academic, but it also fascinated me and uh, arguably made me angry about the inequalities that occurred uh, not only gender, but as I dove into it, race, creed, religion, sexual orientation, and then as you and I will talk, neurodiversity um, yeah. and all of these different pockets. And so I, I continue to dive into that research more so. And the next thing you know, I'm blogging, I'm writing, I am part of startups in the technology industry that are trying to solve this problem. And I think, you know, that's the basis for why you and I are having this conversation today is it's yeah. this thing started probably 15 years ago for me. And, and, and here we are. And so, again, I'm going to thank you uh, for uh, giving me an, another platform to have this conversation, because I think not only is it important from an HR tech perspective, but I also I also think it's important from a societal perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it is. And there's so many paths we could go down right now. Um, but will they ask you coming out of those out of those sort of um, uh, initial experiences those seminal experiences that you had in the space where you where you found yourself sort of it sounds like you f fell into it a little bit you know and you ended found yourself speaking in front of that women's conference um and then returning i believe the next year and what what has uh, what is so so we so we understand sort of the events that have shaped your understanding of of DE and I, um, what is your philosophy or your your what is your sort of assessment of DE and I today? A and B, what is your philosophy toward it? What's what's your what's your take? What's your what's your feeling about it? Well, I, I think they're they're my goodness, that alone, right? It's going to uh, consume a lot of our time. But I would say that. This, they're, they're, it's a real problem. I think first and foremost, you know, I think there's a lot of trends where people will say some of these are myths or, or that. No, there's, there's plenty of strong research that would suggest that if you take a look at all the minorities that there is a, there is a problem. On the other hand, I'm gonna say things that arguably may go against popular opinion. One of those things would be, for example, in the gender world, 
if we plan on solving the inequities between gender, uh, I speak specifically about male and female, the male population needs to participate in that, that rectification. Um, and I think that's important as uh, HR professionals out there are looking to uh, create efforts around their organizations, diversity and inclusion officers, right? You know, we're looking at a lot of chief diversity officers coming into the, into the picture. It's important that all parties associated with that diversity are part of that. I think what's happening is there's a trend uh, to the exclusion of different people. Um, mm. There are there are in the HR world, there's these things called affinity groups or employee resource groups, which tend to give voice to that particular group, whether it be gender or race or whatever it may be. And it does a very good job of the representation, but it does a very poor job on the advancement of the, of, of the, of the equity. And sometimes, for example, I've seen many women's groups that are solely composed of women. Again, great opportunity for representation, but not a good opportunity for advancement. And I would suggest the academic research supports that assertion that ERGs from an advancement perspective are ineffective they are effective for representation. And I think that's the first step, mm. but it's certainly not going to rectify any inequality in the, in the workplace unless we start having male allyship or let's say a, a, a black ERG doesn't have a white um, allyship. That's where the advancement will come from. And I'm not necessarily sure that that message is resonating in this in the workplace just yet. That's interesting. That's really interesting because you know, and there's there's also some you know there's some camaraderie that occurs when uh, when you have um, you know uh, exclusively women's group or exclusively men's group, right? There's some of that camaraderie that that occurs too. It's and it's positive, right? But in in speaking, just I'm I'm kind of reiterating some of the things that you said, but just just to to think my way through it, right? This idea that a women's group forming, uh, exclusive, uh, consisting, comprising solely uh, female membership, right? That is a uh, that's great for what I'm hearing you say. It's that that's great for getting the ball rolling. It's great for representation. It's sort of it's the um, planting the flag in the sand, if you will, right? But then it where where these these efforts are losing steam or maybe take moving in not quite the uh, the best direction is where they 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 um, they they retain or they 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 double down on this. Um, on this female-only membership, or, or whatever the uh, whatever the group is, and that that comes from a good place because they're seeking solidarity, and there's you know, and there's there's sort of a um, a, a shared you know um, confidence building for themselves in that. But but what you're saying is that that does not necessarily advance their actual aim, um, which is to achieve that. That that equity, whether it be in pay or that inclusion in terms of uh, you know company uh, leadership or or whatnot. Um, let's go back to male allyship 
um, because I think that's that's super important. When you think about it, right? It is diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So why wouldn't you want? Why you know it, it, it was put differently. You definitely would want to include the group that maybe you know needs needs to hear a new perspective or would benefit from hearing a new perspective, uh, so that it might adjust its own uh, uh, view on the uh, on the matter. No, yeah, let's go. Let me let me top off, um, you know, a few other ideas uh, around this, this, these ERGs as it pertains to um, advancement, right? So, okay. so let's compartmentalize the conversation between representation and advancement. So again, strong with representation, right? This is a voice, you get a chance to talk, you get a chance to air out the issues. However, when I say advancement, I'm talking about real equity, whether it be pay, whether it be a voice in, in business issues, um, I don't know, having the sensitivities to associated benefits that may come from, from the company to these different groups, it's just not there. And, and here's an interesting research fact. And by the way, uh, those that are listening right now, you might wanna pull out uh, a, a pen and paper because I, I tend to start rattling off references <laughs> on certain things. One of the issues around resource groups uh, is that it appears that when we talk about it, the problem is solved. And there's a, it, it sounds, arguably it sounds ridiculous, but it's true from a, a research perspective. When we talk about it, it sounds like we've book that's a very interesting book that's not necessarily DEI, but it it speaks to this it's a book called the knowing doing gap by jeffrey pfeffer and robert sutton and the idea there's a gap between what we know we need to do and what we actually do and one of the issues there's five issues in the book and one of the issues talks about this talking sounds a lot like doing mm. and when we start putting out ergs or affinity groups and talking about the issue, it appears as if that advancement is taking place, when in reality, it just isn't. There's other research out there um, that would actually corroborate that point. For example, there has been uh, everything from formal to informal research that would have a before and an after uh, employee resource groups. So before uh, ERG is created, give me your sentiment on whether or not your company is inclusive. And usually the scores are very low. Yeah. ERG rolls around basically these affinity groups, which provide representation, but no advancement. You come and ask the same people the same question. And all of a sudden it's 25, the score is 25% better. Mm -hmm. And yet nothing has really happened. Yeah. And so there's this false sense of, um, of advancement when there really isn't. Another book that's interesting to look at or at more of a theory is Edgar Schein's organizational culture theory. Mm -hmm. And he talks uh, the division of a culture between uh, the top would be an artifact followed by values, followed by beliefs. And the problem is, is what's happening right now in the DEI world is we're fabricating a lot of artifacts. 
-hmm. but we're not changing our values, beliefs, and assumptions of those artifacts. So what I mean by an artifact would be an ERG or an affinity group mm -hmm. or, you know, a post or a web page, something that says, look, we're inclusive or look, we're diverse. Look, look at, look at us. Or we, we support the diversity in the workplace. These are all artifacts and they're great. I'm not diminishing that. However, for them to have true advancement effect, you mm -hmm. also have to change the values and the beliefs and the assumptions below which I think sometimes goes unnoticed and unchanged. How, how essential are these ERGs to the, to the sort of the end goal, to the holistic process? Are they, maybe you see where I'm going with this. I, I, are yeah, I mean, they, they are essential. I mean, they, okay. but the, the problem is, is if, if you imagine if we were on a whiteboard or your mind's eye and I go back to those three levels, You'd have artifact is the thing that exposes mm. uh, your values and beliefs, right? And then you have your values and beliefs, and then you, and then you have your associated assumptions below that. And what a lot of people are doing now is they're starting at the top. Yeah. Let's build these things. It's it's again, you and I worked at Cornerstone Learning, right? It's I used to have this conversation with our customers where you would say, just because you bought an LMS doesn't make you a learning organization, right? Uh, a real simple one is I can stand in the in a garage, but the, and does that make me a car? <laughs> it, it sounds silly, but that's the analogy to what it is that we're talking about. And so, yeah, it's again, I I I say it in a sort of tongue in cheek way, but there's there's a lot of reality to it. The values, beliefs, and assumptions have to change. So my advice to everyone out there is really has to start at the bottom. What are your assumptions about values, uh, about equity? What are your values and beliefs about equity? And eventually what would happen, the natural gravitation is, what's the vehicle that I'm going to use to expose those values and beliefs in the corporation, which come in the form of affinity groups and ERGs. Right. So I think it's well-intentioned, but I think we're going about it from sort of that top-down perspective than that more bottom-up. Well, if you go from the bottom up um, direction, right, then your then your ERG is a little bit more um, uh, has a maybe a higher consciousness level, you know, is a little bit more uh, has a little bit more informed, it's a little bit more self aware of what's going on with itself, right? It would be interesting to get to a point, and I think this is what you're talking about, where organizations uh, or groups they realize when they form an ERG that you know, this is, this is an important step, but, but it doesn't end here. You know, this, we're going to have to do something else. Eventually we're going to have to evolve in order to get to the, the advancement stage of things. It occurred to me that uh, with an ERG, it is essential, um, not just for the representation part of it, but also not just to establish that representation, but it's also probably essential for the to, to, to buoy the uh, confidence and the, the positivity uh, uh, in the group that's looking to make the change um, in the organization itself. You, you yourself said that, you know, after an ERG is formed, you, you survey that or you pull that same organization, it feels that, you know, uh, diversity has been solved or that it's better, that it's better, right? And it isn't actually, uh, but maybe it is, maybe it is, a little bit, 
but on a um, on a sort of an attitudinal in an attitudinal way, right? They've made that step. It seems to me that 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 positive feeling, shared feeling in the group, is absolutely essential to moving to moving to the next step. And the idea is to is to educate organizations and groups that that there is a next step that uh, that is beyond the ERG that has to look a lot different. You know, as a formation of any group or any program, you obviously should have goals and metrics and, and ways to measure it. And I think sometimes, again, I think we're sort of harping on the ERG, but use that term as that artifact of whatever it might be exposing in your organization as the goal itself. Mm. Like, let's form one. Let's get all of the people that are the minority in whatever the ERG group is focused on. And that's the goal is attendance and discussion. And hey, that's all great, but that can't be the goal, right? That's, that's what I would call the leading indicators mm. to eventually what would be a lagging indicator when we do see equity in pay, when we do see uh, opportunity for those in a corporate world that are minorities. Until those numbers change, I don't think we've solved the problem yet. And you got to go back to the ERGs, the affinity groups, or whatever that artifact is, and see how useful it is. Mm. What what are the next what are the next steps? Is is there sort of a, a are these are there some best practices here? You know, we talked a little bit about it about including some of the um, so for 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 for, for uh, women's equality for us equity and uh, gender gender equity for instance right um, gender equity um, yeah I'd bring, I'd like to answer that question I don't I don't want to cut you off here but I, I because I know where you're headed with this and yeah. there's there's probably a preface to what your to where your question is and so I want to cut you off here yeah so, that there's a best practice versus versus it looks different everywhere. Correct. And, and, and so let's talk a little bit about the, the, the acronym. Yeah. So it wasn't too long ago when it was D and I, yeah. diversity and inclusion. And then it became D, E, and I. Yeah. And now it's D, E, I, and B, belonging. Yeah. And I think I want to, I want to have a little conversation about that so then I can answer your question. Yeah. So the way this all started was D and I, those are the two things that an organization is responsible for. I need to be diverse and I need to be inclusive. In layman's term is diversity, you get invited to the party, inclusion, you get invited to dance. Yeah. So these are organizational processes and structures in place everything from recruiting to performance management to all of the talent management phases. What's happened is an organization can do all of that and still leave the people in the company empty and actually not realizing the goal. And the goal, by the way, is equity and yeah. belonging. Right. So D and E D and I are the, Contrib the organizational contributing factors, E and B are the way those minorities feel and are treated. Mm. Yeah. And so there's still as that disconnect 
between those two things. So when you come out with a plan, the question is organization, leadership, whatever you're talking to, yes, diversity and inclusion, it's your responsibility to start. However, the implementation or the how mm. has to connect to those feel like they have equity or equality and they feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Again, this, some of this stuff, I'm, I always bring it down to some common denominator, right? You can get invited to the party when you're a teenager and all, but all the cool kids are in the corner, right? And all the nerds are like, you know, wallflowers, which by the way, I, I sympathize because I was one of those nerds. And so, yeah, I got invited, but boy, did I not, I didn't feel belonging, <laughs> nor did I feel like I had any kind of equality with the cool kids. I have one up on you. I had to crash those parties, but I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what's, what's interesting here is um, it's, it's interesting to see that the acronym evolving with our under sort of our collective understanding of, of what this really is about. Right. And, and I like, which is, I was trying to, trying to figure out, I don't think there's really a rhyme or reason around, it's not like it was diversity. And then once you have diverse, when you have diversity, then you, the end goal of diversity is equity because the end goal of diversity is also inclusion and belonging. Um, but the end, the end goal of inclusion is also equity and belonging. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, neurodiversity though. I want to make sure that we we hit on neurodiversity because that's that to me is 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 a really interesting sort of uh, frontier of thinking around what diversity is. You know, to me, you know, as important as diversity is in terms of skin color and and ethnicity and all that sort of thing, that's very important. But to me, we really start to get to the nut of what true diversity is when we talk about neurodiversity. Yeah, let me let's uh, let's dive into that because that's my latest uh, research passion and uh, understanding um, is. So I did all of this stuff back when it was not cool, if I may say so. Yeah. Um, when everyone kind of thought that diverse inclusion was just going to happen because we're all good people, and it just didn't. I mean, I'm not stating any any surprises here. And then what happened was a lot of people became vocal. A lot of the, obviously, the, the social issues uh, manifested themselves um, through, you know, the multiple racial uh, unrest that we've had in this country. And what's, what happened is you had ethnic and racial people uh, speak out and, and, and be very vocal. And you had sexual orientation issues and you had gender issues. Right, all of this, these parades and these efforts became very vocal and became very apparent to everybody in, in the world and you know, actions being taken. Meanwhile, there's a very interesting group that we're leaving out, which is yeah. those that are what, I, what is called neurodiverse. Neurodiverse are people that are on the autistic spectrum. Yeah. Um, I, I, Basically, I'm talking about those that have Asperger's that are highly functional, but they have this condition. And the condition looks a lot like social awkwardness and the inability to express themselves and 
and, and, and very hidden and introverted in all that they do, which goes completely against everything that makes ner- uh, diversity inclusion alive, which is yeah. having your own voice in, in parades and all this other stuff. So I felt compelled to say, look, there's a lot of people now in diversity inclusion that have jumped on that. A lot of people that are getting it right or getting it wrong, or they're working through it. I got to tell you, as a thought leader in this space, I'm allowing all that sort of to happen. And I don't need, no one needs another log in the fire from me on that one. I'm spending my time on neurodiversity and, and exploring that and trying to find what we can do to help those in that spectrum. I'll I'll give you a a fascinating and very sad statistic. 74% of the people we know with it in, in the autistic spectrum world are unemployed. I'll Mm. just let that number sit with you and your listeners. Imagine if I were to say that about any other group on the planet, we would be outraged. And yet here we are. And why is that? Well, I'm going to tell you, our world is built in what's called a neurotypical world. There are expectations that we have of people in social and professional settings that go against every neurodiverse person and therefore they can't fit. I equate a neurodiverse person sitting in a collaborative meeting similar to a person in a wheelchair looking at a set of steps. It's just like, how do I manage and navigate that? Well, we certainly would never allow a physically disabled person not to be able to conquer those steps with ramps or elevators or whatever it might be. And yet we're expecting neurodiverse people to collaborate and speak up and, and, and speak their mind and all this, which is completely against that. And somehow that behavior appears as if they're disengaged, or they don't understand what's going on. And we somehow slot them lower in the chain than we would uh, anybody else. So that gives you a perspective of what it is, you know, the, the issue that we currently have with that, with that group. It's interesting. Um, I know it's, it's just a slight tangent, but it's super interesting to me that with neurodiverse people, um, that we assume, so, so, we assume that they are nor or that they are fully capable. Like we assume that, and we you can't see inside their head, and we don't realize that you know they they are, you know they have challenges, but they also have. Uh, and I want I want to make sure we 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 cover this too. There's a there was a very interesting uh, corporate case study around this that was done, uh, but that there's that, that that they they just think differently, and and that we should be adapting how we do things to uh or we should be excuse me we should create we should be flexible so we can flex to what they do so that they can be as helpful as possible which we actually need when speaking about more conventional like traditional diversity right it's you know the issue has been people sort of making judgments about others based on how they look or who they are and not realizing that they are potentially exactly like us, right? So it's, it's, it's the inverse, it's very interesting. That's that's why I think neurodiversity is so, that's why it's so fascinating to me and why I think it really gets to 
um, it's a full circle, real sort of deep dive into diversity. Um, so there, there's a couple terms I'd like to introduce in this conversation, and hopefully it proliferates into, into your listeners' uh, lexicon, but there's a difference between stereotype and archetype, ah. right? And stereotypes are, you know, a microcosm of our experience. And some of the stereotype traits are obviously true, yeah. but a lot of them aren't. And usually stereotypes are also, um, it, it's just a, a way for our brain to compartmentalize and make it easy for us to categorize our experiences in the world. Archetypes on the other sen our sense is our, our, our set of components that help us build up into an instantiation of an individual. And, and so, so, so think of stereotypes as sort of that top-down generalization. Think of archetypes as that bottom-up aggregation of components yeah. and traits, in this case, of people. And what, what's interesting about neurodiversity is when you're talking about white, black, male, female, it's arguably, for the most part, very apparent because mm. you can see it. However, neurodiverse people are black, are white, are men, are female, are, you know, are everything. Yeah. And you cannot see it. The only way you see it is through their behavior, which again is not how we have looked at diversity in that lens. We've never taken a look at, let's say, a, a woman and say, I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to your behavior. Maybe and we, we should, right? I mean, yeah. we look at them whether they're female uh, or you know born female and we, we then use the stereotype to then take a look at them where if we were to take a look at an archetype and look at their behavior and we we would have much more interesting conversations um and and, and arguably get to know people a little more i, I want to share a, a, an interesting story it's actually part of my research for my book on sincerity out of all people <laughs> um, Alan Alda, you know, everyone knows Alan Alda from MASH. He's gotten into a whole discussion and a thought process around empathy. So Alan Alda is going to make my book uh, uh, where he talks about empathy. And one of the exercises that he uh, talks about is um, noticing what other people are thinking or feeling. And he says, how can I become a better emp empathetic person? Well, maybe as I look at people and try to guess their insides a little bit by maybe the way they behave and all that. What was very interesting about that is a, a researcher picked up on that premise from Alan Alda and made it a real research project. Oh, really? Okay. And then what he found was a couple things. Number one, yes, people became more empathetic but not for the reason you think. They didn't become empathetic because they kind of guessed right of what the people were. They became more empathetic just because they noticed other people. Uh, That's it. Really? They just noticed other people. Wow. And what I'm saying is that can apply across the board with everything, but actually can apply to those in a neurodiverse world and it works on that, what I call that archetype, that component 
um, uh, accumulation towards a person? What, what are their behaviors? What are they thinking? What's their background? You know, these are all the components to an archetype of what makes an individual. And that's significantly more interesting um, than, than anything uh, that we've talked about as far as diversity is included uh, in inclusion. I, I, I'm looking at the time and I want to make sure we, we, we touch on the technology piece of this. Oh, yes. Yeah. How, how does technology help organizations? Um, and, and if you could also quickly share the, uh, the example, there's a, there's a, there was a corporate team example that I, that I think we had a discussion around previously around, they brought in some neurodiverse people and they were able to, yes. uh, uh, if you would you share that with uh, listeners first, and then and then um, and then let's touch on some of this technology. Yeah. So 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 the, so there are actually two case studies that are out there. One of them is SAP, mm. and uh, SAP recognized this as an issue, meaning the neurodiverse issue, and they decided to um, build a business that would exclusively hire those of neurodiversity. Now, one of the interesting things about people that are neurodiverse is they're highly, they're very loyal. Um, their moral compass is very high, mm. um, but they have a superpower of focus. And they, uh, SAP has a group which um, focuses on debugging and finding bugs on, on their code with neurodiverse people. And, and that particular group has generated over $30 million of savings of finding things that would take what usually would take longer down this, the, 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 the software development process mm -hmm. much, much earlier. And anybody in the tech world, as people are listening to now, know that if you catch the bug earlier, that's cheaper than catching it when you're deploying and literally down. Yeah. Well, SAP has more than <laughs> paid for this entire group because they had that. Now, Microsoft, by the way, is another organization that's very, very high on uh, on the neurodiverse uh, development and hiring and, and 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 usefulness. So it's this isn't a hiring what would might consider a disabled person. I think it's a um, a very capable, but a different capable. It's a superpowers that they do have. And so I encourage people to really take a look at um, a lot of the book, the books out there. There's a whole bunch of neurodiverse resources out there. Now, let's talk a little bit about the technology as time uh, closes out on us. Yeah. Um, hopefully by now your your listeners are are bought in. Right? They're thinking, okay, Tom, we're 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 in now. What what are you doing? I'm actually involved in two different startup organizations. One's called Sammy Games. Another one's called. Um, DiversityEquityInclusion.com, and Sammy Games, is basically without getting into a lot of the. By the way, it's SammyGames.co. If anybody wants to go and connect and and talk a little bit about that, really is kind of a sort of a bottom up view. We've been talking about this whole archetype and components. Basically, uh, the software tool it aggregates. Um, what is really happening in the workplace at, at its lowest level and provides immediate solutions to those problems. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, a top-down view. For example, if, if I'm having uh, problems with a coworker, let's say you're taking the credit for my work, how, how, do I, how, do I, how do I solve that problem? How do I understand how that problem is? 
Well, in the past, we would say, hey, go, you know, go to the leadership books and, you know, you'll figure it out. And people are like, look, I don't have time for that. I just need this problem. So it's a very inductive view mm-hmm. of data, right? There's a place where people can, can talk about it. And you can see that, how that can work in a diversity and inclusion culture, where it's like, how am I dealing with my, you know, my uh, disparate or diverse team and no one's listening to me? That's one thing. Diversity, uh, equity, inclusion.com, which really supports a product called DEINAMICS, which is a diversity and in, in, uh, equity inclusion assessment tool. Mm-hmm is is uh, sort of the other end of the spectrum it's like where are you as a company as a person okay. right it, it does uh, very in-depth surveys and assessments that generate reports not only to the organization but also to the individual to say what is it that i can do um in, in where i am and this is the the philosophy is is pretty simple again it's very inductive right from the bottom up but also it draws a line as to where you are, right? Everyone has a very self-righteous view of their beliefs. But I can tell you that you and I, and, 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 and research will bear this, we have biases. Mm-hmm. It's just, it is. And most of our biases are unconscious, very difficult to change. The secret to changing unconscious bias is to make it conscious. Okay. And, and, and that's the only way you cannot change an unconscious bias in its unconscious state. Mm. You have to move it forward, basically to that executive function in your brain to say, oh, I am biased towards, you know, fill in the blank. Okay, now that I know that I can fix it. And that's what these assessments are made to for. We can go uh, another five minutes or so. Uh, and because I want, I want to ask you a couple of follow-up questions around the technology here, because I think this is super um, um, important for, for, for HCM, uh, for, for talent, right? So, and you might've known that I would go here. Um, we have a lot of artificial intelligence being applied in, t- in t- talent acquisition right now. Okay, and, and almost and, all, right under the wire. We all, yeah, I slipped <laughs> right in there. Almost made it. Um, but but seriously though, right? We have we have program, and this is a larger issue um, across the industry where there's a real concern about who's programming this AI and what it's looking for, because people are already starting to use it. And look, the AI isn't, I don't know if it's quite where, where some of the alarmists say it is right now, but let's just leave that behind for the moment, right? There is some AI that's being used in talent acquisition, right? And, you know, and presumably in the, uh, at least in some way in the selection of people, right? At least the people who make it to the, uh, past the first, past the sourcing round, maybe, right? How can we, um, what's going on there? I'm kind of answering the question. I'm just looking for your, your, your take on this or your reaction, right? I mean, I think that this, some of this neurodiversity, that neurodiversity conversation needs to make its way into, uh, the, the programming of, of these algorithms, uh, here's the issue I have currently with AI. Like technology, far be it for me to suggest that AI is not going to get there, but I don't think AI is there now for this issue. And let me tell you why. So 
the fact is that AI needs to be programmed and they're programmed by people that have unconscious bias. I just explained to you that the only way that I can remove unconscious bias is to make it conscious because I can only deal with it. If I'm a programmer and I'm not dealing with my own, I, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to transfer that unconscious bias into the software. I've always been a proponent of software as being a proxy to how we treat and connect to people. It's, and, and I'm talking about this, this part of talent management, the diversity part. Technology is a proxy to how we want to deal. It's a scalability thing, or it's an automation thing. It's, it's a calculative thing, right? It's making us better and faster. Um, and until we can remove our own unconscious bias prior to programming this proxy that I'm calling artificial intelligence, all we're doing is we're scaling uh, a, an unconscious bias. Mm. Uh, your, your listeners can go to, uh, the, to Google and, and see the famous Amazon case study when they try to do that. They try to use uh, AI for recruiting and it, 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 you know, it didn't work. It was actually more bias than people were because it scaled it. I always said that if you uh, install software on a bad idea, all you're doing is enabling scaling a bad idea. Yeah. So you're going to do bad things quicker and bigger. So you have to make sure that your ideas are, are correct before you enable and scale them through software. Yeah, scaling that narrow perspective, uh, unconscious perspective, that that group and aggregate um, programmers, you know, is it programmers typically are a certain kind of they have a certain sort of temperament and attitude right so that's yeah it's something to 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 think about Here, and here's another neural neural science view of things so i'm going to use these these numbers loosely but you get the idea so when we're conscious about we're getting about 136 pieces of information at us that we're consciously picking up temperature of the room, lighting, word sounds. Our unconscious brain is picking up about 2 million pieces of information yeah. at that same time. We use those 2 million pieces of information to inform us about our environment and the people we interact with. To think that we can somehow program 2 million pieces of information that we don't even know what it is seems a far-fetched um, mm. proposition. Again, will we get there someday? Oh, I, I absolutely do. But that's the problem what we're faced with right now. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a huge challenge, huge challenge. Great stuff, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and we will, when we post this chat, just for uh, viewers, when we post this chat, we'll include links to, um, to, the, um, to the sites that Tom mentioned. And um, we'll, have to, we'll have to do this again. Oh, well, well, we often do. We just need to hit the record button. Isn't that right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the world's a better place when Brent and I talk. <laughs> that's, just, that's, they just that's, don't know it. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. We we gotta we gotta get out of our shell. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Tom. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Thanks for the time and goodbye, everybody. Absolutely. Take care. Bye bye.